Thank you, uh, Helena, for that truly lovely introduction. Uh, can I acknowledge uh, members of the Hans family uh, who are here? Also, Her Excellency, the Ambassador from Ecuador, and uh, everyone who has come uh, for the annual uh, lecture. And my coming uh, was uh, initiated by uh, Helena some time ago, uh, talking about uh, the vision she has for a new Oxford University Institute for Human Rights. And uh, it seemed to me that the, the kind of work which uh, UNDP is able to do in support of uh, national human rights institutions and human rights in many other ways would be relevant to uh, talking about the, the work of such an, an institute. And that's what I want to focus uh, on in my uh, discussion uh, tonight. But first, perhaps some words about the, the way in which uh, people who actively work on policy and putting it into practice uh, can interact with the, the great academic uh, institutions uh, such as uh, Oxford uh, is. Uh, in my role at UNDP and uh, previously over many years in public life in New Zealand, uh, I always valued uh, the policy and research community and the support which they could give to developing evidence-based uh, policy. I think it's very important that good policy is based on insight, on knowledge, on analysis, uh, and of course uh, academic uh, insights can lead to a lot of innovation in what we do in policy and practice. And there's no reason why this should not apply to the advancement of human rights as it does to any other areas of policy. At this uh, great university there is a great deal of rigorous uh, scholarship and it does inform our work to promote the three interconnected pillars of the United Nations mission, uh, as set out in the Charter in 1945, which are peace and security, development, and human rights. Now, the vision uh, proposed for the new Oxford Institute for Human Rights is, and I quote, to ensure that law, policy, and practice can be more closely informed by the work of human rights scholars and that academic research agendas can in turn be more closely informed by the needs of policymakers, legislators, and practitioners. This is a highly relevant mission uh, for the UN at large and uh, very relevant and welcome to the UN development uh, program as well. Now, I know that law professors and students at Oxford have long provided support to people uh, doing practical work in diverse uh, settings. And building on that, uh, Helena, if your institute can become, as you wish, the preeminent resource hub in Europe for a range of actors in the field of human rights, that would be a wonderful uh, thing. Uh, there is a lot of work to do. So I want to talk about the practical work and how uh, the insights that uh, uh, academics and scholars offer us uh, helps. I want to start, of course, with a disclaimer. I'm not a legal scholar, and UNDP has neither a normative nor a monitoring role in human rights. Uh, we are the practical people uh, who put uh, good ideas into uh, operation. And in particular, we help build institutional capacity uh, for more just, fair, well-governed uh, societies which can uphold uh, human rights. 
So, always good to go back to the UN Charter for a, a founding statement of uh, very important uh, values. And included in the Charter, in Article 1, uh, going beyond maintaining international peace and security, the purposes of the United Nations are said to include to achieve international cooperation in solving international problems of an economic, social, cultural, or humanitarian character, and in promoting and encouraging respect for human rights and for fundamental freedoms for all, without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion. Reading that now, you think we'd probably say gender these days rather than sex, the language uh, tends to uh, move on. And then building on the charter, this remarkable body of uh, international human rights law began to develop. The 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, documenting variously the range of civil, social, cultural, political and economic rights which everyone should enjoy. Now, this solid body of conventions, treaties, declarations developing at the global level greatly influences the language and commitments to be found in many national constitutions. And more than that, when countries are going through complex transitions, and we see a number of complex transitions occurring these days, not least in the Arab states, Advocacy groups turn back to these very important uh, documents uh, for inspiration uh, and from which to advocate for new constitutional norms and settlements in their uh, countries. But of course, we can go beyond uh, the specific documents uh, that I just mentioned. Uh, we can go to CEDAW, uh, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Uh, acronyms aren't always great. The Convention on the Rights of the Child translates as CROC, but CROC is a very important convention for uh, the rights of the world's uh, children. And all these kinds of uh, conventions convey a vision of a better, fairer, more just world, and directly or indirectly guide the scope of work of organizations like mine, like UNICEF, like UN Women, like the UN Population Fund, uh, like the High Commission of Human Rights, and so many of us, and importantly, set the values and priorities for the work our people do in the UN's country teams around the world. Now, obviously, the links to be made between human rights and development are of great interest to us. So let me refer to the Declaration on the Right to Development of 1989, which says that the right to development is an inalienable human right by virtue of which every human person and all peoples are entitled to participate in, contribute to, and enjoy economic, social, cultural, and political development in which all human rights and fundamental freedoms can be fully realized. This year, the UN is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Vienna Declaration and Program of Action, which came from the Second World Conference on Human Rights in 1993. And that established that human rights are interrelated, indivisible, and interdependent, 
noting that, quote, extreme poverty and social exclusion constitute a violation of human dignity. That Declaration and Program of Action 20 years ago also called for the establishment of a UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, obviously now very well established, and encouraged the creation of more national human rights institutions. And I'll say a little more about our work with these, but the, the number of them has expanded a great deal uh, over the past uh, 20 years. But in these years, there's also been growing awareness of how development actors, uh, like the one I lead, can contribute to realizing human rights. If we go back to 1997, when Kofi Annan had a drive for reform in the UN system, all the UN agencies were called on to mainstream human rights in their work. And the following year, UNDP adopted for the first time a formal human rights policy uh, called Integrating Human Rights with Sustainable Human Development. So we've been seeing this process of greater convergence between the human rights and the development agendas, both conceptually and in practice. And I think that's also in part due to the emergence of the human development paradigm with its people-centered approach. Let me say a word about that, because the very first global human development report published by UNDP in 1990 declared that, quote, people are the real wealth of nations, and it defined human development broadly as a process of enlarging people's choices, freedoms, and capabilities to lead lives they value. That concept obviously encompasses the right to human dignity, the right to have a say in decisions affecting one's life, and principles of empowerment and equity. Now, this was rather revolutionary at the time because development progress had tended to be measured by how fast your GDP was growing. Uh, the pioneering work of Nobel laureate Amartya Sen and his colleague uh, Mahbub al haq went beyond the conventional equating of GDP growth with development to a broader judgment of development progress on how it actually impacted on people's lives, a concept which surely embraces rights. Building on that paradigm, and it was a paradigm which came out of academics working with UNDP, the practitioners and the thinkers got together. Uh, we have, of course, moved on to see poverty having many dimensions beyond uh, income uh, poverty solely. And we have collaborated with the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative, uh, a collaboration which led to the introduction of the multidimensional poverty index in the annual human development reports. And that index uh, examines deprivations beyond low income, deprivations ranging from no member of a household having completed five years schooling, uh, to having had one or more children and the household die, and to not having access to clean drinking water, electricity or adequate sanitation and the overlapping of these deprivations. It seems somewhat self-evident to me that those experiencing multi-dimensional poverty of this kind are in effect having the right to development denied to them, which is unjust. So, 
just as the Oxford Poverty and Human Development Initiative's work led us to new insights on poverty, so I think, uh, Helena, the Oxford Institute for Human Rights you propose can help introduce new thinking on how to translate human rights principles into practice and facilitate exchange of knowledge and experience from those who are engaged uh, in it. Uh, at UNDP, we sum up our mission in this little phrase, empowered lives, resilient nations. You know, what do you do at UNDP? We seek to empower lives and build resilient nations. Uh, we are guided by a principle of national ownership because development goes nowhere if a nation doesn't believe in the agenda, embrace it and, and take it uh, forward. And we engage long term to build and strengthen national capacities and institutions which can drive development progress, empower civil society, and expand opportunities for marginalized individuals or groups so that they too can participate in the decisions which shape their lives. All of this is highly relevant to the achievement of an advancement of human rights. Our Global Human Development Report in 2000 was on human rights and human development, again, bringing the concepts together. Arguing that, and I quote, human rights and human development share a common vision and a common purpose to secure for every human being freedom, well-being, and dignity. That very same year, the Millennium Declaration issued from the Millennium Summit of the UN, which I was privileged to be present at myself, called for respect for all internationally recognized human rights and fundamental freedoms, including the right to development. Now, the truth is that UNDP's mandate to promote sustainable human development and inclusive governance enables us to support countries to incorporate human rights principles and standards associated with the conventions and treaties which they've signed up to in their national policies, development plans, and strategies. The high level of trust in UNDP as a development partner and our commitment to national ownership of development enable us to work on what are very sensitive topics in a number of countries. In response to member state requests, our work in more than 100 countries has focused directly on supporting the national human rights machinery, and more broadly on efforts to strengthen the rule of law and justice, and I'd like to now give some of the practical examples of uh, this kind of work. Uh, the national human rights institutions, for example, uh, supporting those that do exist and helping establish those where there is no such institution. Uh, around two and a half years ago, I went to Bangladesh, which had just established such an institution. We'd given a lot of support to the design and legislation around this, and there was a lot of excitement in the community there uh, about that, uh, that institution. But there are uh, a number of national human rights institutions which uh, struggle for money and struggle for space and uh, are not at this point able to reach what's called, I understand, an A-level uh, accreditation or listing under the Paris Principles for these institutions. So part of our work is also supporting 
national human rights institutions to walk that road to be recognised as uh, being on the A-listed uh, countries. Some of the specifics in Timor-Leste, we worked with what is called there the Providoria for Human Rights and Justice uh, to build their capacity, helping to bring in new legal and operational management policies, train the staff, help draft the policies and legislation, and help with the tools for their strategic planning. Croatia, we supported the establishment of the People's Ombudsman's Office as one of the main institutions providing redress for citizens, helping to clarify its mandate and its responsibilities, improve its coordination, increase its visibility and accessibility as it worked to uphold new anti-discrimination legislation. And we also supported the government there to develop a witness and victim support system in Croatia, primarily focused on the conflict-affected population from some 20, 22 years ago. And that system's become a model for the region. I was in Croatia in January, and still new steps are being taken on this agenda, including endeavouring to bring justice to women victims of rape from the conflict of the early 90s who have seen no justice uh, to date. Sierra Leone, which as you know went through a very, very troubled period, we worked to support the Human Rights Commission there to hold their first public hearings back in 2011, where it invoked its quasi-judicial powers for the first time and brought down a decision uh, in favour of 235 former soldiers who'd been discharged and denied their end-of-service benefits. In that decision, they upheld constitutional provisions, providing a right to privacy and protection against discrimination. Uh, then, as part of our collaboration with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, we launched about two and a half years ago a toolkit to guide our country officers on how to work with national human rights institutions. Uh, how to provide information on best practices and strategies. And in the Asia-Pacific region in particular, we've worked with the forum uh, which all the region's national human rights institutions belong to, the Asia-Pacific uh, Forum on the National Human Rights Institutions, on a methodology for capacity assessments of the institutions. And now particular assessments have been done in countries from Malaysia to Afghanistan to identify areas for targeting capacity support for these institutions. And as I said, from our work we know that many of them continue to be short of funds, short of capacity, short of expertise, including legal expertise, despite the important role they play. And it seems to me that an initiative like a new institute at Oxford uh, could play a rather important role in uh, offering such support, including by hosting training and serving as a resource for practitioners. Another important area of our work, when countries sign up to international conventions, there's normally a reporting mechanism. Uh, for example, the universal periodic review process of the UN Human Rights Council, which is really rather important. Every country signs the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and is expected to front on a regular basis at the Human Rights Council. 
for the first time, this can be very daunting if countries have not presented these uh, kinds of reports. And of course, civil society, where it exists, is generally also expected to provide a shadow report. So uh, often there's a need for a lot of support to get these reports together. And uh, it is far from uncommon for UNDP to be phoned to say, help, uh, we have uh, to present at the uh, Human Rights Council and prepare the documentation. Could you help us mobilize support to do this, which we're, we're very happy to do. Now, having appeared before uh, the Human Rights Council for the, the periodic review, uh, recommendations are then made to countries, which they can accept or not accept. If they don't accept, of course, next time you go back, probably the same questions will be, will be asked. But in any case, there's a, there's a requirement to follow up. And at that point, often the phone will go again to UNDP to say, we have this list of recommendations. What, what now? What now? Uh, when I was in Yemen two years ago, uh, they had been through Universal Periodic Review and also had reported under CEDAW. And uh, both uh, the bodies uh, which had heard Yemen uh, provided rather a long list of recommendations, which to Yemen's credit, it, it was prepared to accept the bulk of. But it did require a program for a tremendous amount of legal, regulatory, policy and practice reform, which is not done overnight. So part of the advice we can give is on, well, how to sort through this prioritized sequence and so on. It's very practical work to try and give, give life to these, these mechanisms and processes. We've done it in a very wide range of countries. Now, beyond that, we're very active in supporting the, uh, the rule of law and, uh, and justice sectors, which again are critical to upholding uh, human rights in countries. And I want to say a few words about that. Uh, last September at the UN General Assembly, for the first time ever, there was a high-level meeting of member states on the rule of law. And from that came a declaration that, quote, the rule of law and development are strongly interrelated and mutually reinforcing. The advancement of the rule of law at the national and international levels is essential for sustained and inclusive economic growth, for sustainable development, for the eradication of poverty and hunger, and the full realization of all human rights and fundamental freedoms, including the right to development, all of which in turn reinforce the rule of law. So if anyone ever says, UNDP, why are you working on the rule of law? You come straight back to these very important statements which say, without the rule of law, you don't get terribly far on the eradication of poverty or uh, many, many other things. And uh, we have given rule of law support again, to rather more than 100 developing countries, including 37 affected by crises of one kind or another. Uh, so uh, some of the examples in Georgia, we've worked with legal aid lawyers and with the public television station on building public information campaigns about the legal rights of displaced people. Uh, in Vietnam, we partnered with civil society groups and universities for clinical legal education programs which would develop the areas of knowledge of law students and give accessible legal services for the poor and marginalized. I know that 
sometimes there's a tendency to look at authoritarian countries and say, what could you possibly do? Well, uh, I recall a visit to Beijing two or three years ago where I went to a legal aid clinic that we had supported the establishment of for migrant workers. And the countless millions of people who come from the interior of China to work in the big cities and the factories uh, are not always treated well, and they have real issues. And I went to this clinic, uh, legal aid supported by students, uh, uh, but like voluntary legal aid clinics uh, anywhere in the world, and saw migrant workers, obviously often very poor people, small people in size uh, from uh, poor nutrition, and they had grievances, and they told us their grievances. You can make the space for this kind of work uh, in a wide range of uh, societies. In India, we supported a training program for one and a half million uh, poor people on legal rights and entitlements. Uh, it trained around 4,000 paralegal personnel, community justice workers, and elected women representatives on how to support people to access justice. Turkmenistan. Well, uh, I went there two years ago. We had a collaboration supported by the European Union and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, and it was bought into by the government. And we opened a human rights resource centre. And since then, an additional four have been opened around uh, the country. Uh, so it's an early step, and we are now working with the government as it drafts a National Human Rights Action Plan. Again, you know, these may not necessarily be the kinds of initiatives you would associate uh, with Turkmenistan, but you can create space uh, to begin some of this work. We've also been working with UNICEF, uh, UN Women, and the uh, UNIFEM as it was in the past, and the Danish Institute of Human Rights to look at informal justice systems including doing country-specific case studies uh, around regions of the world. Looking at the human rights implications of informal justice processes, especially for women and children and vulnerable uh, groups. And I'll say a little bit about that specifically uh, in a comment on Rwanda in, in a moment. Uh, but we've also partnered with women's organizations, again, in a wide range of countries, to help them strengthen their capacity to advocate for women's rights in formal and traditional justice systems. And I personally was rather excited to see in Botswana last year a case brought to the High Court uh, by women which overturned a customary law which had prevented women from inheriting family property. A good case of uh, customary law being tackled uh, with the through the mechanisms of the formal law of uh, the land. Now, then there's the issue of transitional justice. As countries emerge from what has often been a rather uh, bleak uh, past, uh, with a lot of violations of uh, human rights, uh, and then new institutions with integrity provide a very important part of the, the architecture uh, moving, moving forward. Uh, indeed, to try to tackle these abuses and stop them festering in a way that may continue uh, to provoke conflict and division is rather important. 
we say that every civil war which has begun since 2003 was in a country which had previously experienced civil war. You know, things were not settled. Uh, without accountability, the old wounds can fester and that infection can erode the peace processes. So we work uh, very much on facilitating national dialogue, bringing in civil society, victims groups, women's groups. A good example of this uh, in Colombia at the moment as it tries to find a way forward from the debilitating conflict which has gone for half a century uh, with, the, with the FARC and the national dialogue there we've worked on nationally but also at the regional level uh, with platforms for women's groups, rape victims, indigenous people, civil society groups, peasants groups, uh, wide range of people infected by the, by the conflict. Uh, similarly involved with the national dialogue which is happening in Yemen now as it tries to find a way, way forward. Uh, and then in the countries of the former Yugoslavia, another example, working to support the capacity of the national justice institutions to tackle crimes related to the violent conflict at the time of the breakup of the former Yugoslavia. And that leads me just to make a very brief point about the role we're playing on what is called complementarity uh, in the Rome Statute, which set up the International Criminal Court. It stands to reason that the International Criminal Court itself will only ever be able to try the, the kingpins, the, the very worst top cases. Uh, but in countries where there has been a genocide and many, many, many perpetrators, in the end, the national justice systems in some way have to rise to the occasion of, of dealing with this. And that's the principle of complementarity, to build the capacity of justice systems to, uh, to do that, that work. And the International Criminal Court and the Assembly of States parties to the, state, uh, to the Rome Statute are very supportive of our work uh, in this area. Another country where we're providing a lot of support to the nascent justice uh, sector is Somalia, uh, including from actually physically helping get the courts and police stations built, uh, to training police units and members of the judiciary, uh, helping establish mobile courts that can travel around and numerous legal uh, aid uh, clinics. Also been providing support to female law graduates through internships and other opportunities and many of them are now working to prosecute crimes committed against women and children and addressing gender-specific injustices. Uh, Guatemala, again, racked by armed violence over a considerable period of time. We've been very involved in transitional justice processes there. Uh, and it doesn't sound so pleasant, but it isn't, uh, from exhumations uh, and forensic analysis support to reparations, psychosocial care, historical memory, archiving, the necessary work to start to get justice mechanisms uh, going. Uh, Rwanda, I said I would say a, a word about because it is an example of a genocide uh, where the kingpins were tried uh, in Arusha. Uh, that tribunal has now wound up its work. Uh, but Rwanda, in the end, opted for an informal justice system to deal with the very, very wide uh, scale of, of abuses, uh, called the Gachacha Courts, where, in effect, there was a process of truth-telling uh, at the, the village uh, level. 
and one reads articles from time to time, including in the British press, uh, which raise the issue of how does it feel to be a woman uh, still living in the village a few doors down from the perpetrator who raped you, killed your husband and your children. But he's still there and he's not in jail. Of course, there were many such perpetrators and it's a very, very difficult uh, issue. But Rwanda has, uh, I guess, for now, accepted that as, as the best way forward. But as I say, these processes do have implications uh, for, uh, for women and, and, and children and, of course, all members of the, of the community. Uh, but we have you know, been involved in nat national restorative justice initiatives in many communities and in helping set up truth-seeking and reconciliation bodies uh, around the world. So uh, let me uh, conclude my comments by saying uh, that there are opportunities now uh, to highlight some of these issues in the big global discussion that's going on on what the international development agenda should look like when the Millennium Development Goals targets have run their course, which is by the end of 2015. And to try and inform this discussion, uh, the UN, uh, with UNDP uh, leadership, has been holding or facilitating national consultations and global thematic consultations and chatter through social media and surveys, uh, which to date has involved around 400,000 people. And not surprisingly in these consultations, uh, human rights principles are being raised as very important to the world's uh, peoples. Effective and honest governance is also widely raised as something that people want to see. And also rule of, rule of law, participation, equity, voice, extremely important. Uh, the UN officials uh, gave a report to the Secretary General at the start of the year on the shaping of the post-2015 agenda, saying it should be, quote, based on three fundamental principles, human rights, equality, and sustainability. It said these core dimensions are consistent with the notion of freedom from want for present and future generations, building on the three pillars of the sustainable development concept, the economic, the social, and the environmental, and the principle of freedom from fear. Uh, we have summarized the key findings out of all the consultations to date, and noted that people do want this expanded development agenda, reflecting strengthened public accountability, equity, and human rights, uh, and real responses to the realities of ongoing uh, high unemployment affecting the world's young people in particular, the need for good governance, uh, the need to uh, somehow uh, recognize the reality of the huge migrant flows of, of people, legal and illegal, uh, the huge environmental challenges and the peace and security challenges. Uh, seven years ago, when Kofi Annan was Secretary General, he said, quote, humanity will not enjoy security without development. It will not enjoy development without security, and it will not enjoy either without respect for human rights. This is why we say these considerations uh, need to be in the discussion around the post-2015 agenda, so that citizens of all countries 
can live in dignity with their human rights respected and upheld in our lifetimes. We think exchanges between academia and the people working to translate ideas into practice and policy uh, can play an important part in realizing that vision. And uh, Helena, I hope that uh, the institute you propose uh, and the hard work of your colleagues can really help us collaborate on all the practical things that need to be done uh, to indeed ensure that the world's people can live in greater dignity than many are able to live in today. Thank you. Thank you.